You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Some intellectuals are famous, and some are intellectual famous. N.T. Wright appeared on the Colbert Report. Reinhold Niebuhr testified before Congress. Cornel West was in a couple Matrix movies. George Lindbeck didn't do any of those as far as I know, but in certain circles of Christian theologians, he is indisputably intellectual famous, opening up possibilities for ecumenical engagement, influencing Stanley Hauerwas, attending Vatican II. He's been around. My own engagement with Lindbeck has been almost exclusively with his 1984 book, The Nature of Doctrine, so when I got a chance to read Sean Brown's recent book, George Lindbeck, A Biographical and Theological Introduction, I came away seeing his work in that book as a chapter in a rich and rightly intellectual famous career. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Reverend Brown to the show. Sean, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get in too far, I'll remind our listeners that a few years back, the Christian Humanist Podcast recorded three episodes on the nature of doctrine, and you can find those in that episode's show notes, or in this episode's show notes, or on our RSS feed as episodes 233, 234, and 235. But Sean, for our listeners who don't have three hours to dedicate to that, let's start with a question of intellectual ecology. What are a couple places where uh, George Lindbeck shows up in the world of theology? It's interesting because I think if you were to ask that question in the 1950s or 1960s, you would have gotten uh, something like medieval philosophy and theology. Uh, but uh, I think today, if you were to find Lindbeck in in recent theology books, you'd most likely find him in three areas. I would th- I would say uh, ecclesiology, ecumenism, and theological method. Very good. I also want to get us listeners to get a sense of your book's project. So I want to start with the discussion questions at the end of each chapter. I tend to associate those kinds of questions with small group guides and devotionals and such, but I might have too narrow a frame of reference here. What work are those uh, discussion questions doing at the end of each chapter? Well, that's a feature of the series that the book appears in. Uh, it's it's a part of the Cascade Companion series. And um, the goal of that series is, uh, and I'll quote the way that the they word it in the description of the series inside the volume, is to combine academic rigor with broad appeal and readability. So each of the volumes in the series actually have discussion questions at the end of each chapter. So when I talked to my editor at AAR a few years ago, Charlie Collier, about possibly doing this volume, uh, he said, well, you know, that that means you have to do discussion questions. Is that something that you think you can do? And so that was a little challenging for me. I'd never, uh, well, I, I guess I've done it for like youth group things before coming up with discussion questions, but but not in more of an academic thing. So I went through some of the other volumes in the series on on figures and and topics to look at the kind of discussion questions that tend to appear in these volumes. And um, and I went through each of the chapters and put some together. And to my knowledge, I don't think Charlie cut any of the ones I put in the volume out. So I think I, I did an OK job. He accepted them, you know, without any uh, any fight with me. So uh, I, I was I was glad that 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 wasn't more challenging than I thought it could have been. Well, and it's interesting because, I mean, these questions are not um, comprehension questions mainly. Um, You know, I mean, they tend towards the existential. They tend towards the spiritual. Uh, I mean, you know, is this book for like the most awesome small group ever? 
Um, I guess I kind of thought about it as maybe like a group of master students that are, that are reading through something together or something like that. I didn't really think, you know, I don't, I don't really envision like a Sunday school class at a local church doing something like this per se, but, but possibly, um, you know, a group of theologically inclined uh, people that would be getting together. And I, I, I tried to do a mix of things, some comprehension. And I guess I did some stuff that was more existential. I know I, I did one on the chapter one on him as a student where I talked about uh, the the role that, that, that H Richard Niebuhr and Robert Calhoun played in influencing him. Like who are the people that have influenced you? I didn't know if that would be a good one for the volume or not, but it was, they, they published it. So it's in the, it's in the book. Uh, so there you go. yeah, that sounds good. I don't know whether most Lindbeck readers are familiar with his work on Luther, but I certainly wasn't before I read your work. So say a little bit about what changes when a Luther scholar begins, not with his polemic works, but from a parishioner's perspective. Yeah. Before I answer your question, I just want to say uh, that a challenge for me in doing work on Lindbeck, uh, both here in this volume and also, I don't know if you know that I also, my my dissertation was published as well with Paul Grave McMillan, uh, titled George Lindbeck and the Israel of God, Scripture, Ecclesiology, and Ecumenism. Send me a link um, and I'll put it in the episode notes. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Is that... Um, that he's an expert in a lot of things that I'm not an expert in. Uh, he was trained in medieval philosophy and theology, and that's not my area of expertise. He's a lifelong Lutheran um, who was trained by the catechisms and confessions in the Lutheran tradition. You know, he's an observer of the Second Vatican Council and participated in Lutheran Catholic dialogue. And I knew I couldn't become an expert in these areas, but I did what I could to become conversant so I could better read and engage Lindbeck's work. And so in terms of his work on Luther, Luther and the Lutheran tradition, I was initially working on these, the, this, uh, my understanding of his, his work on Luther and the tradition alongside like 2016, 2017, when Luther was everywhere, you know, coincided yes, with indeed. the 500th yes, anniversary of the 95 theses. So at that time I read through, um, Martin Luther's basic theological writings, which is a, uh, you know, a thick volume, but it's not exhaustive, but it's edited by Timothy Lowell and William R. Russell. I read some of the biographies that were coming out at that time. And I did that alongside reading some of Lindbeck's little pieces on Luther. And in particular, his piece, Martin Luther and the Rabbinic Mind. And this was originally published in a Fetschrift for Jewish scholar Max uh, Kudishin. I think I'm saying that correctly. And is also republished in the Church in a Post-Liberal Age, which is a a collection of Lindbeck's writings that was edited by one of his uh, Roman Catholic students, James Buckley. And I should say Buckley was the external examiner on my dissertation committee. Um, so I have a connection with him there as well. And Lindbeck says uh, close to the beginning of that essay that he decided, um, as you say, to examine Luther mostly from a parishioner's perspective rather than the the usual way that historical and theological scholars focus on Luther looking at his more controversial uh, writings. And he contends that this perspective has merit because that's how most people in Luther's reference, like Luther's time knew him. Uh, they knew him more from his sermons, from his commentaries, from his table talks, from his letters and his catechisms and confessions. And these kind of works alongside his translation of the Bible into German 
were actually Luther's most influential works in his lifetime and, and not necessarily the more controversial pieces. And so Lindbeck says, I believe that their view comes closer to the original Luther than the most scholarly reconstructions, including Lutheran ones. Now, I've already said I'm not a Luther scholar. I'm not an expert on the Lutheran Reformation. But as I read Luther's writings uh, and some of these biographies, I decided to try on that approach that Lindbeck gives, and I wound up finding it compelling. Uh, I was, you know, I wasn't previously a fan of Luther. I'd read a few of his pieces where he's, you know, very caustic in his language towards Anabaptists and Jews, for instance. Uh, but as I looked at some of his other writings from this perspective, I was drawn in, and I actually came to have a greater appreciation for Luther, especially as somebody like myself who has experience in youth ministry, looking at the ways that Luther um, really emphasizes uh, instruction for children. Um, you know, families uh, coming together to study together, these kind of things. And well, so it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I, one datum that really spurred my imagination in this chapter is that in the catechisms, uh, Luther refers to the Decalogue not as lex, which is roughly translated as law, but as doctrina, which you can translate as teaching. So, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, as you said, my main familiarity with Luther is from, you know, on the, on the bondage of the will and on the Babylonian captivity and on the freedom of the Christian, you know, very polemical works, uh, very pugilistic works. Uh, but here, I mean, you know, uh, he is willing to say with the psalmist, you know, um, you know, oh, how I love your law or how, pardon me, oh, how I love your doctrina. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Lindbeck talks about how in the large and small catechism, um, Luther doesn't get into some of these more controversial issues. He doesn't discuss justification by faith alone, total depravity, double predestination, opposition of law and gospel. And so while his opponents often accuse him of antinomianism or devaluing of good works, we see nothing that lends to the, itself to that in the catechisms, for instance. Um, and uh, also the catechisms don't suggest that um, Christianity is primarily in, about beliefs and not about actions or these kind of things. And I think given the formation you and I both received at Emmanuel, I found this compelling. Like William Robinson is somebody who's been a big influence on me. And he wrote essays that talked about this dichotomy people often have between theology and ethics or between liturgy and ethics. And Robinson sees these as false dichotomies and says we have to hold both of these together. And so when you look at Luther and these other places, you see him doing this kind of work. Um, and so in his catechism, Luther organizes it around five topics, which are the Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And um, Lindbeck argues that these actually, in a way, have a kind of parallel with the rabbinic concepts of Torah, Shema, the Adama circumcision, and the Passover Seder. And while all five of these are important, none of the five can exist without the other. They're all organically related. And uh, and so that's the kind of thing that Luther is actually you know, uh, doing is organically relating all these together. And um, you know, in his more controversial mode, there are times where he says the Christian life is freedom from the law uh, that functions as a tyrant and both in the way it demands something of us and accuses us. And so because of that, some in the later Lutheran tradition 
uh, have have stressed this liberation to the point that some later Lutherans like Kierkegaard or Bonhoeffer have critiqued what they see as cheap grace within the Lutheran tradition. But what Lindbeck says when you look at the catechisms, that's not the picture you get. There's no theological like polemic against the law there. Um, and Luther refers to the Decalogue as doctrina, not as, as, as law. And he even says that the Ten Commandments are a guide for the Christian life and that anyone who knows the Ten Commandments perfectly knows the entire scriptures. Um, right. And that's a, that so, is a fascinating, I, I remember encountering that in Luther's catechism years ago and thinking, okay, where, what, where is the guy from on the bondage of the will here? And, you know, I think you've summed it up nicely that, uh, you know, I mean, he is a supreme rhetorician. He speaks differently to different audiences, writes differently for different readers. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we see him talking about the Ten Commandments, not as a tyrant, but as a treasure. And um, and he actually says elsewhere in, uh, in things like a practical way to pray that uh, that when he prays, he does stuff like recite the Lord, the, the creed and the Lord's Prayer. But he also recommends that we we sing a hymn, even a hymn to the, on the Ten Commandments. That's you know, it's interesting. I don't know any of those. I didn't. Oh, I certainly don't either. <laughs> hymns on the Ten Commandments. But apparently, he was familiar with them. Uh, and um, he says that when he when he prays, he actually prays through the Ten Commandments as a way of guarding himself from sin. And he breaks the commandments down into four parts. He says, "I think of each commandment as first instruction, which is really what the Lord God demands of me so earnestly." Second, I turn it into a thanksgiving. Third, a confession. And fourth, a prayer. So he gives you very practical advice on how to engage the Ten Commandments uh, constructively and positively as, as Christians. And uh, and that's not something I, I really read in, in other people before. And so I that's one of the things that I, I found really compelling in, in Luther and, it, and has me returning to him uh, more now that after having gone through this study on Lindbeck's work. Sounds good. Well, of course, Lindbeck is is involved in all kinds of areas of theology. So turning from his work on Luther to the thinkers whose influence shows up in his work, Lindbeck seizes on H. Richard Niebuhr's claim that denominational differences have deeper roots in social and racial differences than they do in theological departures. Now, when I was reading, I'm thinking, okay, you know, Dr. Brown is uh, getting us ready for his ecumenical work later. Uh, is this a bit of foreshadowing? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so yeah, uh, Lindbeck mentions Niebuhr and also Robert Calhoun, who I believe we'll talk about later, as two of the teachers at Yale that shaped him the most. And he says he didn't necessarily agree with everything they taught him, but they, they're thinkers that thought, taught him how to think. Uh, so uh, Lindbeck doesn't agree with everything Niebuhr said, but Niebuhr helped him understand the possible, possible value of sociological and anthropological tools for the study of theology. And we can see, for example, that Lindbeck, you know, draws upon cultural anthropologists like Clifford Geertz or sociologists like Peter Berger and the nature of doctrine. And he he points in some places to the fact that Niebuhr is the one that introduced him to Weber and others and helped him see the value of, of these kind of sources. But in Niebuhr's book, The Social Sources of Denominationalism, he notes that many historians look at divides between churches and assume if they just look at the differences in doctrinal formulations, they can understand why two groups divided from one another. But Niebuhr says these approaches are inadequate because they ignore the role that differences in language or culture 
or economic status or national identity played in these divides. And this led Lindbeck to have an interest in what he calls non-theological factors in ecumenism. And this is an aspect of Lindbeck's thought that remained largely implicit for much of his career. Um, he has a 1988 essay uh, called Non-Theological Factors and the Structures of Unity. And he says that in the 1960s, he was giving a presentation to a group of European scholars on this topic. And Yves Congar came after him, came came up to him after the presentation and and told him, you, you shouldn't be doing this. This is not good. And so he wound up remaining largely silent on the topic after that. Uh, he had great respect for Congar, considered him the Roman Catholic ecumenist par excellence. And so um, I think he took that, you know, that critique seriously. Um, but he he later came to do more work on it. Maybe, maybe Congar helped him nuance some things, uh, but I'm not sure exactly. Since I don't have the first presentation to compare to the second, that, that say from 88, I don't know how it compares. But in that essay I just mentioned, that non-theological factors essay, uh, Lindbeck explores the relation of theological and non-theological factors and Christian unity and disunity. And he argues that as the disciples died out, the church established other means of maintaining communal interdependence, such as the episcopate. Like when a new bishop was installed in an area, the requirement was that bishops from neighboring areas would come and participate in the consecration. And so these helped maintain networks among the churches. Uh, but at the same time, differences in language and culture played a role in dividing Greek-speaking East from Latin-speaking West, between Punic-speaking barbers that were sympathetic to Donatism and Syrian and Coptic speakers who didn't affirm Chalcedon. And so the increased recognition of these non-theological factors and in, in how they played roles and how early Christians formulated their doctrines has opened up avenues for ecumenical dialogue. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has been in dialogue with various Oriental Orthodox churches or churches of the East, and, and the same can be said for Eastern Orthodox churches today. Uh, they've come to see in various ways that Christians in the debates that led to the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon were in many ways talking past one another. And and so they've now been able to come and um, and recognize that recognize that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, um, and I, but I want to make a comment on this because I don't want this to be misunderstood. Just because Lindbeck has this interest in non-theological issues uh, that have divided Christians does not mean he minimizes the importance of doctrinal or faith and order ecumenism. You know, he later... Oh, sure. I, 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 th I think that gets reflected in the nature of doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he laments the decreased emphasis upon doctrinal and unitive ecumenism over the decades. And um, and he argues in, in a later piece that's in a, a feshrift for uh, Hauerwas uh, that, that faith and order takes precedence over life and work in somewhat the same way that faith takes precedence over works and Reformation teaching. So he still sees faith and order as central, but um, but definitely wants to look at at the social realities that that took place in some of these Christian divides so that we can better understand what divided us and better talk to one another. Right. Well, you mentioned Calhoun earlier, so we ought to talk a little bit about him. I'll confess that I had never heard of Calhoun before this book, uh, but I knew that I had found a kindred spirit when your book told me that his students often couldn't tell what Calhoun actually believed. And, uh, you know, the, the story that I like to tell is that in one of my last semesters in uh, graduate school, I got uh, complaints in my 
end of semester evaluations from two, two different classes. One group thought I was trying to turn them all atheist and the other group thought I was trying to turn them all Catholic. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the director of undergraduate teaching just brought me into her office and just shook her head. And she said that, that, that sums up your career, Nathan. So I, <laughs> um, but let me ask you this. I mean, you know, if we're using Calhoun as a model, as, as Lynn Beck seems to, um, what in his pedagogy could be helpful for the life of faith and especially for ecumenism? Yeah, I wasn't familiar with Calhoun either until I started doing more in-depth work on Lindbeck and also his Yale colleague and friend Hans Frey and my doctoral program. But uh, Calhoun was a Congregationalist minister and a professor at Yale um, who was known for these year-long seminars he taught on the history of doctrine and the history of philosophy. So he's one of those rare people that that just was very broad um, in his scholarship. And because of that, he didn't publish a lot. Um, you know, but the last piece of of publication that that Lindbeck actually produced uh, was actually preparing Calhoun's lectures on early Christian theology for publication. Uh, Cascade uh, published those, and uh, Lindbeck argues that Calhoun functioned like an historical critical scholar in the classroom, so it was often difficult to pin him down confessionally. He was really good at giving sympathetic pictures of why a certain figure thought the way they did. And Lindbeck argues that this allowed students from liberal Protestant traditions to be more sympathetic to Christological and Trinitarian dogmas. Um, and in this, Lindbeck argues that Calhoun modeled the kind of generous orthodoxy that he and Fry touted. And this enabled Lindbeck and others that were students of Calhoun to become ecumenists. And this was not an accident because Calhoun himself actually participated in ecumenical dialogues. Um, so I don't know if it's always helpful to not let students know what you think about something. Um, but uh, Lindbeck said, you know, Lindbeck does say in his introduction to Calhoun that his methods in philosophical and doctrinal history may have opened minds to matters before and dreamt of, but this agnosticism was not by itself a heart transforming force. Um, it didn't necessarily always, you know, lead to people, um, growing in their faith or something like that. But at the same time, I think modeling that kind of generous orthodoxy is of central importance. You know, when we're talking about other figures, uh, that maybe even people we disagree with, um, we should seek to present a theologian fairly, understand them on their own terms, and not mischaracterize them in our critiques. And that's very difficult to do. Uh, I know from my own time engaging with Ronarians or Lonarganians, um, they're often not appreciative of Lindbeck's critiques of them. Uh, and um, and so, you know, it's something that even, you know, Lindbeck could have done better at at times. And and it's something that I, I hope I can try and do well when I'm engaging with somebody I disagree with, is to try and present them fairly and understand their own perspective the best I can. Sure, sure. Now, Sean already uh, uh, tipped the cards a little bit earlier. Uh, he came through the same seminary that I did uh, when I went through. It was still Emmanuel School of Religion. Was it already Christian seminary when you went through? The year after I finished. Okay. <laughs> they changed. Okay. So now, my, more, my, M, my MDiv says Emmanuel School of Religion on it. Ah, oh, very good. Very good. Now, more importantly, uh, had Fred Norris already retired or uh, did you get to study with him? No, Fred retired. Um, he came. He came and taught a class one semester. Uh, on global Christianity, but I had just taken 
Kipololia's History of the Church in Africa, and I knew that they were limiting the number of people that they were going to allow in the class. And so I, I didn't try and put my name in as po- one of the possible students in it because I I felt like I already got kind of a global Christianity class in my curriculum and needed to take gotcha. some other things. I got you. If I had known that he was going to be offering it, I might not have taken the Africa class with Kip. You know, but, yeah, I got gotcha. uh, you. I got gotcha. you. I, I, I was Fred's uh, research assistant on that global Christianity book. So I, that, okay. that's kind of that's kind of fun that he was teaching it, you know, several years after I left. But one of the things that that Fred said when uh, he discovered that I was reading Lindbeck, I was, I was reading it on my own, not for one of his classes, uh, is that, you know, George Lindbeck is at root a Thomas Aquinas guy. And, you know, simple minded person that I am, I assumed for years that Lindbeck, therefore, was Roman Catholic. But uh, as your book has, you know, corrected uh, for Lindbeck, Thomas is a theologian who might help to unify splintered Christian factions by means of a theology that's mainly interpretive or hermeneutical in character and stopping short of promising God's essence. Instead, it gives us regulations that govern our speech about God. Um, So, I mean, you know, is uh, Lindbeck uh, just setting up Thomas Aquinas as his own uh, his own foreshadowing or, uh, you know, what does Lindbeck discover in Thomas Aquinas that informs his later work? Yeah, there's a common assumption that Thomas Aquinas is for Roman Catholics. And that makes sense in a way, you know, the Roman Catholic Church has even in official pronouncements held up Thomas's teachings as central for them. You know, I once heard Stanley Hauerwas say when he interviewed a teacher at Notre Dame, they asked him what classes he wanted to teach. And he said he wanted to teach a class on Thomas Aquinas. And they asked him why he, a Protestant, would want to teach a class on a Roman Catholic like Thomas. And he responded that Thomas would not have seen himself as a Roman Catholic because the Reformation hadn't happened yet. Uh, and and so Lindbeck has a similar view. Um, you know, Thomas lived prior to the Reformation. So while he's not a Protestant, you know, he's not a post-Tridentine Catholic either. And so Thomas belongs to all of us. Um, and in addition, he also sums up for us the previous 12 centuries of tradition. So he's a very interesting figure for us to look to that can bring forward the previous 12 centuries and also predates the divides between Protestants and Catholics. And Lindbeck um, toys with the idea, he has this kind of um, intellectual experiment, uh, that if if Thomas's thought was more well-known at the time of the Reformation, maybe the schism could have been avoided. You know, Luther mentions Thomas and is critical of him, but scholars today don't think Tom, like Luther ever read Thomas in his own words, uh, that he right, only knew right. the Thomas of his day. <clears throat> and uh, perhaps if if Luther or Calvin had actually like read, you know, Thomas's Summa or something like that, uh, they would have had a different perspective on him. But Thomas is the kind of figure that he emphasizes we're saved by grace alone. And he says that the primary work of a theologian is to interpret scripture. And I think one of the promising movements and among Thomas scholars today is looking a lot more at his biblical commentaries. There's a guy named Matthew Tapey that I know wrote his dissertation looking at um, at uh, Thomas's work on uh, his Pauline commentaries. Uh, but um, again, you know, I'm not a Thomist, and you know, even though this book just came out a few months ago, I I wrote it a lot longer ago, so I'm trying to do the best I can to summarize some of these things about you know, regulative doctrine and things like this. But Lindbeck draws upon the work of Thomas like um, A.G. Sertelanges to note that 
Thomas says in it, that in this life, we cannot see the essence of God. And we come to know God from creatures, um, and to quote Thomas, by way of excellence and remotion. And because of that, Thomas says uh, God can be named by us. And uh, this is related to Thomas's view of analogical predication of God. Um, Thomas says that while what the divine names signify is truly found in God, their mode of signification is entirely different from any with which we are acquainted. So just as an example, let's think about the word good. What does it mean when we call God good? We use that word a lot. When my dog listens to me, I say, good dog. You know, I come home from a pizza place and tell my wife, oh, they have pretty good pizza. You know, what What do we mean the exactly the same thing by the word good when we speak of a dog or a pizza or God? One hopes not. Yeah, one hopes not. Uh, but there are some who hold to like more of a univocal view of divine and creaturely predication. And they say, yes, you know, good means the same thing across these. Others on the opposite side hold to an equivocal view. And they say the usages of good there have nothing to do with one another. And Thomas discusses a third view, uh, his own, an analogical view. We should say that does not mean that analogy is the dead middle between univocal and equivocation. Uh, right. Analogy right, right. is, if anything, it's closer to equivocation because he says that in analogies, the differences are always greater than the similarities. Um, so we can properly speak as God is good, but we do not properly know the meaning of good in that context. We don't really know what it means to say that God is good. We can know it's true. Um, we can affirm that God is good. But we don't actually even know what that word good means in that context. Um, so the various names of God help us situate God in ourselves. They help us recognize our own limitations as we seek to speak of God rightly. And, and what we confess about God then should lead us to worship and praise. And then these practices of worship shape our thoughts, our passions, our attitudes, our actions. And um, so I, I think I see commonalities there on Lindbeck with, um, you know, people like Jamie Smith, who's more influenced by Augustine or, you know, uh, McIntyre or others uh, in the ways that, um, that these kind of theological formulations actually shape us as people to be people that are seeking to worship God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, incidentally, listeners, uh, a few years back, I got to interview uh, Frank Beckwith from Baylor University about his uh, book, Never Doubt Thomas. And it's 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 about the same kinds of uh, ecumenical possibilities for Thomas Aquinas. So uh, I'll probably put a link to that in the show notes as well. But I want to turn towards the Vatican II chapter, because this is one that, again, I really wasn't familiar with until I read your book. Um, so again, thinking he was Roman Catholic. Uh, I still didn't know that he was an invited observer uh, without being part of the Roman Catholic Church. Your book discusses with some detail Lindbeck's interactions with Lumen Gentium, a light to the nations, and its vision of the church as a pilgrim community whom God has sent into the world. That seems to link up with, again, several parts of Lindbeck's work. So talk about uh, his writing on Lumen Gentium for a moment. Yeah, I've had several people over the years, you know, ask me, oh, what are you working on? Who is this Lindbeck person? And when I tell them he was an observer at Vatican II, they assume, <laughs> oh, that must mean he was Catholic. And I have to explain that, no, the, the Roman Catholic Church actually invited uh, specific individuals from outside the Roman Catholic Church and then asked various Protestant and Orthodox bodies to delegate observers to the council. So 
to be specific here, Lindbeck was not an invited observer in the strict sense. Um, my language here is a little misleading. He was he wasn't invited by Rome directly. There were people like Karl Barth that were invited. Uh, Bart was unable to come because of health reasons, but he went later and had some dialogue with um, some of the writers of the of the documents. But Lindbeck was uh, a delegated observer. Uh, the Lutheran World Federation was asked to delegate three observers uh, at the first session, um, and they chose uh, Danish bishop Christian Skidsgard, uh, Hungarian uh, Vilmos Vodka, and Lindbeck. And then some other Lutherans were also sent by the LWF later. And as the junior of the three observers, Lindbeck was asked to actually take up residence in Rome. So he got a leave from Yale and he and his young family went and took up residence uh, in Rome uh, and stayed in between sessions, not only when the council was meeting. And they, he was asked to keep connections in Rome and to travel around Europe some informing Lutherans of the progress of the of the count the council um during that time he wrote prolifically he has numerous pieces in journals and magazines uh, on the on the council and he contributed to some multi-author volumes that were produced by some of the observers and um uh, Lindbeck sees lumen gentium the dogmatic constitution of the church as the centerpiece of the council uh, there's actually if you look at a lot of interpretations of vatican ii um the perspective that they come to kind of depends on which document they think is most important. Right, right. Uh, so I think people that are a little more conservative tend to think Lumen Gentium is most important, whereas more progressive people tend to think that uh, God emits space, the constitution on the church in the modern world is more important. Um, and uh, But one of the things that Lindbeck notes is that the council documents are purposefully ambiguous in certain ways. They had to be open to conservative and liberal interpretations so that the council could accept them. Um, they, they had to give a certain number of votes in order for each of them to be accepted by the council. Uh, but in Lumen Gentium, there's a recognition that the church is the messianic pilgrim people of God and also a sacramental sign of the kingdom that is already but not yet. So by recognizing that the church is a pilgrim people, uh, the council recognizes the church has not yet reached its goal. And this sounds good to a Protestant, right? Uh, and uh, so while Lumen Gentium does not go so far as to actually say that the church itself has sinned per se, it does say in paragraph eight that the church, embracing in its bosom sinners, at the same time holy and always in need of being purified, always follows the way of penance and renewal. Uh, so the council... Um, the council also argues that while the common priesthood of all Christians and the ministerial hierarchical priesthood differ essentially and not only a degree, uh, it argues that we share in the priesthood of Christ. So in, in these kind of affirmations, it brings the Roman Catholic Church's understanding of ecclesiology closer to reformational emphases on the priesthood of all believers and some of these issues. And um, also... And noting that the church is assigned to the kingdom and not identical with the kingdom, that um, you know Lindbeck likes that uh, as as a good Lutheran. Um, so it, it's a recognition that the church is sent into the world to make disciples, to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ. But alongside these two ways of viewing the church as a pilgrim people on a sacrament, uh, there's also a discussion in Lumen Gentium of the church as an institution, and this can be read in different different ways. 
And while this does include discussions of the church hierarchy, especially the episcopate, uh, chapter four is devoted to the laity, and chapter five focuses on the common call to holiness. So uh, Lindbeck definitely appreciates the way that that uh, the church is discussed more wholly, including the laity. Not like the church is just the leadership, um, but includes all those people that are all called the holiness. Very good. And uh, uh, Lindbeck's work on ecclesiology in the 60s is in direct dialogue with Lumen Gentium and, and conciliar and post-conciliar Catholic thought here. But I'd say there's quite a bit of overlap between this way of speaking about the church and his later work on the church's Israel. And I know you're going to ask me about that later, so maybe we'll hold off on some of that when we get to that point. Oh, yeah, yeah, because, I mean, I want to dedicate some time to Nature of Doctrine because this is probably the book, if our listeners have heard of Lindbeck, this is the one that they've heard of. The George Lindbeck who shows up in the Nature of Doctrine is decidedly an ecumenical figure, and his ec ecumenism, pardon me, seeks out church unity without demanding capitulation. Now, we've talked about, you know, the regulative character of theology before. What kinds of theological and maybe even rhetorical regulation does that approach offer? Uh, yeah, he, he in the 1970s, and some of his ecumenical pieces, and then as well as the nature of doctrine, um, Lindbeck argues that the unity of the church, the unity of the churches is not attained by surrender, capitulation, or loss of identity on either side. Um, so he notes this is not only his idea, but it's actually one that you see in the Vatican II document, Unitatis Redintegratio, which is the decree on ecumenism. Uh, we don't come to have unity through some kind of collective amnesia where we forget our history. Um, we can study this history and it can lead us sometimes to reevaluate things as the Roman Catholic Church did in Vatican II, but we don't destroy what comes before us in order to unify. And when we study past divides between Christians, like between Protestants and Catholics, uh, we must consider differences in culture and language, recognizing that words and sentences are, are to use Wittgensteinian terms, dependent upon use and function to have meaning. Um, and But he concludes that when Catholics affirm and Protestants deny something, like magisterial infallibility, for instance, they're probably not speaking about the same thing, and so they're probably not actually contradicting each other. Uh, so what we want to do in ecumenical dialogue is look at the positions of two bodies of Christians and ask, can their positions actually be reconciled within a new hermeneutical setting? And we actually see something like this in his writing on justification and then the, in the 70s and 80s. And um, and, and he, he did this writing as a part of his participation in the U.S. Lutheran Catholic Dialogue on Justification, which was a precursor to the later joint declaration on the doctrine of justification between Lutherans and Catholics. And um, and that's, that's another example of a document that's about doctrinal reconciliation without capitulation. It was not as though Catholics came and said, you know what, Lutherans, you were right all along. We recant our past views, and we now agree with you. And it wasn't like that on the Lutheran side either. Rather, both sides maintain their confessional formulas while recognizing that there's a, another sense in which their positions actually agree with one another, um, that they were actually in various ways talking past one another in the 16th century and forward, and that there's actually ways to to reconcile their views. And, and uh, I don't know if it's possible to do this on every issue. Uh, you know, something like, you know, maybe something that hits home for both of us. Um, people that baptize infants and people that baptize 
you know, only only those who are uh, believers. Above, believers, yeah. Um, uh, that's the common terminology: believers, baptism, yeah, believers, infant baptism, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for those that only baptize believers or only, you know, that also baptize infants, um, there is kind of a way in which something's got to give for there to be a unity on something like that. But on something like justification or even magisterial infallibility, there are ways in which we could maybe come to see that our positions can be can be reconciled. Right, and, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I as as things happen to unfold, I was reading most of this ebook during my early mornings between sessions of Theology Beer Camp, which is a gathering of largely progressive Protestants and ex-evangelicals. So when I got to the chapter on the nature of doctrine in your book, it helped me to narrate and reflect on my place in that kind of a gathering where my theolo- theological approach fundamentally differs from the approach of those around me. And one of the most crucial differences, I think, is that I concur with Lindbeck. I should say that Lindbeck has taught me that scripture is not a metaphor describing universal human experiences that are prior to revelation. Now, I've got my thoughts on this. I've, you know, obviously Lindbeck has shaped me on this, but I'd like to hear your take. Um, what difference does it make when one takes scripture as revelation uh, as opposed to taking scripture as uh, one iteration of a more prior and universal human spiritual experience? Yeah, I think if I understand your question correctly, this pertains to Lindbeck's discussion of the differences between extratextual and intratextual approaches to the Bible, something along those lines. Yeah, and also the difference between the linguistic uh, hermeneutics and then the uh, emotional expressivist hermeneutics. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, um, I would say that the one of the misunderstandings that I often run into with people when I we talk about I talk about uh, when Lindbeck's typology and the nature of doctrine comes up of the cognitive propositional and the experiential expressivist. And then he talks about the hybrid approach of, of Rahner and, and Lonergan that seeks to kind of combine uh, the two, uh, taking aspects from each. And then the fourth approach that he holds up is the cultural linguistic, um, is that they assume that, okay, because he holds up the cultural linguistic, it means that he negates the cognitive propositional or the experiential expressivist. And that's actually not what he's doing. He's actually doing more of a Hegelian sublation of the two. All right. The cultural linguistic includes the cognitive propositional and the and the, the experiential expressivist, but not in such a way that it's simply blending them. Uh, but it it brings them in and 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 elevates them uh, at the same time. Um, so we are, we obviously have, you know, cognitive thoughts. We say things and propositions, and we also experience things. Um, but I think it deals with the direction by which we tend to focus on on things. Um, so he talks about like the difference between extratextual and intratextual. So an extratextual approach locates meaning outside of the text, in some kind of objective reality or in common human experience. Uh, whereas an intertextual approach seeks to understand the world in light of God's engagement with Israel, Jesus, and the church. And he uses the language of the scripture, scriptural world absorbing the universe and it providing an interpretive framework within which we be, we looked, we seek to live our lives and understand reality. 
Um, some have critiqued that that language of the the scripture observing the world, but absorbing the world. But I think what he's doing there is doing something kind of like what Calvin does and saying that scripture gives us the spectacles by which to see. Right, right. Um, and um, so I think with the experiential, you know, the kind of liberal theology that that he's engaging in, um, or even on the cognitive propositional side, there was sometimes this temptation to think that we could kind of stand above it all. We have this like this viewpoint above the contingencies of history by which we can adjudicate things. And he doesn't think that's possible. We can't stand at a God's eye view, but rather we are within and we're, we're people that are shaped and formed by, by scripture. And we, that scripture gives us a lens by which we can then look out and, and understand reality. And that doesn't mean the circle circle doesn't go the other way ever. Um, like, you know, our understanding of modern science may give us a different perspective on Genesis one, for instance, than people in pre-modern eras. Uh, but I think it's an, it's an asymmetrical hermeneutical circle, if that makes sense. The, the primacy is on, on scripture going out and not on what's out going, going in. Right. Right. And I mean, we should pause and note that, uh, in the 13th century, uh, their modern science also influenced the way they read Genesis one. So, right. I mean, I, 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 I do get weary sometimes of people assuming that, you know, there was no science before Galileo. Yeah. Even, I mean, Augustine even looks at, at, um, in his, you know, quote unquote, literal interpretations of Genesis one, they don't sound literal to modern literalists. Um, right. But, right. Uh, and he's actually even like looking out at people that are, that, um, are denying things accepted by the science of his day and saying, you're making us look like fools by not, you know, accepting things that people just around us just assume are, are reality. And uh, yeah. So I, I think that's where we could, we'll talk about the post-liberal issue later, but this is where we see him um, Lindbeck doing like a post-critical retrieval of early Christian thought and not necessarily go trying to go back and be and and just replicate what Augustine did or what other people did in the past. Right, right. That that that's the most common critique, uh, not only of Lindbeck, but also of uh, Alistair McIntyre, even though McIntyre actually has a paragraph where he says, we cannot go back to the past. This is why we, and he provides his alternative, but this is not a podcast about McIntyre. It's about Lindbeck. So I want to talk about one more idea running through the nature of doctrine, and that is that after Christendom, the church need not reinvent Christianity ex nihilo, but might recover something like a patristic notion of catechesis for the faithful. So how does Lindbeck propose to learn from the ancients uh, without, as we just mentioned, pretending to recapitulate the pre-modern church? Yeah. Uh, so Lindbeck argues that the primary way that Christians have transmitted the faith to others throughout church history has been through catechesis. Uh, and he notes that even after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, um, figures like Ambrose or Cyril of Jerusalem emphasized catechesis as a response to mass baptism. Uh, we can't just make it so that people come in to be baptized as some kind of political political expediency to help them 
advance. We actually want to form them as disciples. We need to require them to go through uh, extended catechesis. And uh, Lindbeck doesn't say we can just replicate what they did in the past. He differentiates between repristination and resourcement. Uh, uh, but I should say the practice of catechesis was even very important for him as in the Lutheran that he was Lutheranism that he was raised in. Um, he was expected as a part of his catechesis to memorize the small catechism. Uh, and he, he notes that this emphasis on catechesis has waned, but he calls upon us to find ways to retrieve it, to have a formal practice by which people learn how to speak Christian. And to do this, we need to be placed in communities of fluent speakers, if I can put it that way. And uh, one thing he notes is that many contemporary Christians think about evangelism as something like a Billy Graham crusade. You know, someone goes and they're called to believe and they come to believe and then they're told, well, now you need to go find a place to belong. And uh, he says, actually, in the early church, the, 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 the direction was often the opposite. People were drawn to the life of the church and came to belong and then were instructed on how to believe. Um, and uh, Lindbeck thinks we should retrieve something like this, but he actually raises doubts about whether or not he thinks it can happen. You know, whole groups of people in the modern West are nominally Christian, and we've made membership in the church today too easy. You know, we've just failed to catechize people. And so when you have people that are that haven't been properly catechized, how are they going to then catechize others? Um, but I was at a conference uh, a few years ago in Toronto, and one of my teachers, Ephraim Radner, who was actually one of Lindbeck's students, uh, was responding to a presentation that James K.A. Smith gave. And, you know, Smith did his spiel about the role the liturgy plays in shaping us as Christians. And Radner said that as an Anglican, he, of course, thinks that the liturgy shapes us, but we can't expect liturgy to do all the work. You know, we need catechesis to come alongside it. But unfortunately, many North American Anglicans have neglected this piece of the puzzle. But Radner's had experience serving as a priest in Burundi in Africa and being on the mission field. And he's seen ways that Anglicans in the global South actually do a much better job of including formal catechesis alongside the liturgy. So I think we need to find ways to be in dialogue with the past, but also looking to our brothers and sisters elsewhere and learning what, what are they doing well and catechizing their people that we we have to find a way to to embrace. Uh, right. Well, let's talk about that, you know, that global people, uh, because your book's final chapter focuses on Lindbeck's work on ecclesiology. And I'll confess, I had not read any of this. But in that work, I mean, you know, you've mentioned this phrase before, but his central metaphor seems to be the, quote, messianic pilgrim people of God, end quote. So, how does Lindbeck propose to deploy that image without making the all too common historical claim that the church replaces Israel? Yeah. Um, one thing I want to not to quibble too much with your, your wording there. Um, but for, <coughs> but for Lindbeck, uh, this is not simply a metaphor or an image. He's actually critical of the kind of, uh, Avery Dulles models of the church volumes, you know, yep, those kind yep. of things that abound. <laughs> so you can um, hear the Avery Dulles coming for, through. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no, it's all right. Um, where uh, he he says that uh, too often what happens is even like something like um, his his 
Yale colleague, Paul Minier, wrote the book Images of the Church, whereas 96 Images of the Church, the New Testament. And Lindbeck raises a concern that too often those kind of studies turn into a study of the images or a study of the metaphors. And they they remove us from actually studying the church as a concrete people. Uh, and so, <clears throat> but he emphasizes in his work the ways that we understand the church as the messianic pilgrim people of God typologically shaped by Israel's story. Or he, he says elsewhere that we see the church as Israel-like, and later he modifies that and says that we see the church as Israel. And, and what he means by that is uh, that when we read the Old Testament, uh, we see that Israel goes <coughs> Israel goes through times of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Um, they're 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 led astray, and then God sends people in to uh, take them into captivity or something like that, and then bring them back. Uh, that this is actually what we do as the church too. Um, we go through times of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. We um, we're we're led astray. We're we we go down the wrong path. But just like Israel didn't cease to be Israel, just in, in times of unfaithfulness, that's the church as well. Uh, so we we tend to, to gravitate towards two triumphalistic views of the church. Uh, one of them is kind of more of a traditionalist Roman Catholic position, which is that the church is incapable of sinning. Okay, um, but he says that there's another triumphalism of the Protestant side, which tends to say that oh, if that church over there has done something unfaithful, they've ceased to be church. And that we need to avoid uh, both of these kind of triumphalisms and recognize the ways that we as Christians have sinned, have been unfaithful, have gone astray, uh, and are being called to repentance, being called to faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And so he likes um, kind of a narrative approach to understanding who the church is that allows us to not only think about the church prescriptively, which is what ecclesiology often does. Ecclesiology often does a, a prescriptive thing of this is what the church should be like, or this is what the church should be doing. But we need to think theologically about what the church actually is in history, to think theologically about the church's complicity in the Holocaust or in sexual abuse scandals. And um, and that doesn't mean that we're, we're laissez, that we are lax about church discipline or something like that, but just recognizing that we're a fallen people. You know, he, you know, Simul used to, Epicotter, as, as Luther would say, uh, that we're simultaneously sinners and just. And um, so I, I think that's been helpful for me in terms of thinking about church history um, and what it is that that ties us together with Christians from previous ages. And even to look at people like Luther, who, who you know, said very horrific things and understanding his role in the history of the church and uh, that we can take what's what's good there. And be critical of what's what's not good there, but still, but I think one of the ways that Lindbeck does this 
is by is by noting that first of all that early Christians were uh, largely Jews uh, initially. That changes later, where the church becomes uh, you know a largely Gentile community. But even for us, those of us who are Gentiles, uh, that we're grafted into Israel, uh, so we're a part of this expanded uh, covenant people of God throughout history. And um, and so that what that does is it allows us to say that we're Israel without negating that Jews are Israel. And so he, he the language he uses in some of his essays is the difference between appropriation and expropriation. So expropriation would be something like saying that, all right, the Christians are now Israel and the Jews have been rejected. Uh, whereas instead he says that we've come to appropriate the identity of Israel without negating the fact that the Jews are Israel. And so that allows us to, uh, in various ways, I think, have some dialogue with uh, with Jews <clears throat> that would be uh, very helpful. And he he notes that, you know, there some, might be some Jews that take offense of this kind of language, but he, he points to a, a book by Jacob Neusner where, where Neusner actually kind of holds out hope that, you know, there was a time when the church kind of had this identity as being Israel that they've since lost in various ways. But perhaps if they retrieved it, they would have a different attitude towards us as Jews. It would cause them to have a, a different, more sympathetic response to us. And I, I think that's something that we can that we should uh work at holding on. And I know I've had controversial responses to my my work on some of this. I actually had an editor at a publisher reject a book proposal from me because he was concerned that it sounded supersessionist. It sounded like this kind of, okay, the church is now Israel. And so we reject, we reject the Jews place uh, as God's covenant people. And Lindbeck's very careful in saying, all right, we should hold up this kind of view as ecumenically promising, uh, but do so cautiously uh, because we don't want to, um, give any idea, like make it seem like this is some kind of anti-Semitic or supersessionist understanding of, of who the church is. Right. Right. Well, I want to turn to another term that uh, is either going to catch some good attention or some bad attention in 2022. And that is the term post-liberal. Um, so as someone who has, you know, written a book on Lindbeck, uh, what common ground does Lindbeck's idea of post-liberal theology share with our moments appropriations of that word and speculate for me where might Lindbeck find the most trouble in the most recent uses of the term post-liberal i don't know if i can speak to how it's being used recently i mean i know i've i've heard that it's being used by some proponents of integralism and these kind of things uh, but i'm not well versed enough in some of these developments to really uh say a final word on that but I can speak to how Lindbeck did use the term, and, and maybe others can fill in the blanks themselves there. Fair enough. Um, but he he says that when we're looking at some of the challenges for theology in his time period that he was facing, um, that uh, that the, the the temptation would be to just kind of abandon modernism and go back to some kind of pre-liberal orthodoxy. And he says that that's not what we should be doing. Uh, instead, we should conceive of what he calls a post-liberal project. And he actually, 
uh, coins this unhyphenated term post-liberal on purpose. He talks about this in some other places uh, as a way of differentiating it from other projects that could be called post-liberal with the hyphen. Uh, and, and there's a 1995 Wheaton Theology Conference that was then published later on as The Nature of Confession. Uh, and there's a panel discussion that's appended to the back of the book. And there, uh, Lindbeck tries to do some refining of what post-liberalism means in response to the conversations that they had at the conference and their time there. <clears throat> and he defines post-liberalism there as a research project or an attempt to recover pre-modern scriptural interpretation in contemporary form. So he calls upon theologians to receive, retrieve classical exegesis without necessarily rejecting the strengths of historical criticism. You know, there have been some gains, and, and one of them actually relates to his you know, work on, um, on Christians and Jews and how we relate to each other. Some historical critical work in the present by E.P. Sanders and others has helped us get rid of some negative stereotypes that we've had about about Jews previously and and reevaluate uh some of these issues um so uh and and he goes on to say that some have critiqued post-liberal theology because they've looked at works like the nature of doctrine in particular and thought that there's an overemphasis upon method here that doesn't actually lead to theology and um but he thinks this criticism is misplaced because he and others that are in this kind of research project do constructive theology. And I think reading his project more broadly and seeing the way he actually does that um, helps us understand how he did it. But he also notes that others like George Hunsinger also do constructive theology from within a reformed tradition perspective, whereas he's done it within Lutheranism. And then we see also, you know, some of his former students um, who are Roman Catholics have done kind of a post-liberal type theology within a Catholic uh, perspective, or, um, you know, there are others that are indebted to him that have been able to do it within, you know, a free church context or, or various other ways. Um, so, you know, it just not, not becoming overly fixated upon, upon method uh, that, that the topic that we're studying actually is what determines our method and not, kind of coming up with a preconceived method and then saying, I then bring that uh, to theology. That makes good sense. That makes real good sense. Well, Sean, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about George Lindbeck, ecumenism, Lutheran theology, or whatever else as we head for the door? Oh, well, I, I, I want to say that I, I wrote this book um, you know, as well as my my first one, uh, largely because you know I've I've been captivated by Lindbeck's uh, project. I think he's a worthwhile theologian to engage and study. And I've I've run into too many conversations I've had with people over the years. You know, even well you know well studied theologians that have the doctorates and study lots of things that are only aware of the nature of doctrine and have not read anything outside of that. And uh, so I hope if you pick up my book and you read it and you appreciate it, that it actually leads you to go and read him in, in primary source. Um, I, I, I think a good place to start is the, the book I mentioned earlier in our discussion, uh, James Buckley's uh, edited volume, you know, The Church in a Post-Liberal Age, that brings together some of Lindbeck's uh, most important essays 
over the decades under under what you know in in one volume. Um, I, I hope to do some more of work like that in the future because so many of his pieces were occasional. They were you know journal articles or uh, essays in in edited volumes. Uh, but I think he's he's been a, a very good dialogue partner for me. And even though he wasn't ordained and wasn't in in uh, pastoral ministry, we say I've actually found you know, his work very helpful for me in a ministry context. You know, I'm not an I'm I'm you know even though I have a PhD, I'm not in an academic role. I'm an associate minister at a church, and um, so I've um, you know I've I've drawn upon him a lot in my ministry context here in terms of thinking about the importance of biblical literacy in the church and and seeing the old testament as uh, a resource for christian theology and not that you know that kind of thing we're just kind of embarrassed about in the bible we kind of wish wasn't there um he's he's helped me um think about uh ways of retrieving pre-critical exegesis that i think are helpful for preaching um and and so i I would just want to commend him as somebody worth engaging uh, to those who have either only read The Nature of Doctrine or haven't read him at all. Sean Brown, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. Appreciate Listen you having me. Yeah, listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is George Lindbeck, A Biographical and Theological Introduction from Cascade Books. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.